This morning, we will be looking at verses 20 through 31 as we continue to make our way through this epistle. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which deem, we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. Unity within the church is absolutely essential for its purity and devotion, for its effectiveness in ministry and service. In fact, for its very survival. And for this reason, Satan does everything he possibly can to produce disunity within a church. And one of his most ingenious strategies to promote disunity is through what we would call uniformity. Uniformity rather than unity. Uniformity means sameness or likeness, conformity, the opposite of diversity. Let's all think alike, look alike, act alike, etc. Let's all wear the same uniform. The word comes from that. Now, this appeals to our flesh because we all want to fit in, don't we? We all want to be a part of a family, part of a group, part of a culture. And there's a sense in which we all want to think and act and look alike. And we certainly see this borne out with our young people. Teenagers are very prone to peer pressure. They will all tend to have kind of the same look, kind of do the same things. But unfortunately, the center of gravity around which uniformity must orbit in a culture is based upon false doctrine, false teaching, false philosophies, worldly philosophies. And this was part of the problem in the church at Corinth that Paul is addressing. They had adopted an errant philosophy concerning spirituality. If you would have asked them, what is it that makes a person really spiritual in the church? They would have said, oh, that person speaks in tongues. Pretending to be spiritual by stammering, irrational gibberish, nonsensical syllables. And of course, as we've studied, that was a counterfeit of the genuine spirit-endowed gift that God gave certain people in that day, not today, but in that day, to have the miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language that was unknown to them for the sake of proclaiming the word of God and authenticating the gospel message. A message, by the way, that also had to be translated so that everyone could be edified. 
Well, nevertheless, tongues became the preeminent mark of spirituality. That was the mark of being elite, an elite Christian, the really spiritual Christian, the spirit-filled Christian. So, therefore, every Christian needed to be a tongue speaker. Uniformity. Sadly, this same perversion exists today in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. Uh, the, the, the Speaking in tongues is the initial and universal uh, evidence of baptism by the Holy Spirit, as they put it. And in reality, the, the modern version is nothing more than kind of a self-exalting, um, self-gratifying hoax, a massive delusion not a supernatural endowment to edify the church. But the Corinthians believed that every member should strive to find this level of spirituality. They therefore pursued uniformity in the realm of spirituality, especially with respect to spiritual gifts. And so they were striving for that gift and some of the other showy gifts. And of course, Paul attacks all of this vigorously as we've been studying. He explains in chapter 12 that uniformity is the polar opposite of diversity and therefore the enemy of unity. And through the vivid metaphorical imagery of the diverse parts and functions of the human body, he proves that diversity is the key to unity and functionality in the body of Christ. Like humans, the body of Christ could not exist if we were all the same. Can you imagine a human body that was all eyes or all face or all whatever? That's why in verse 4 of chapter 12, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, to begin with here, I, I want you to remember a great principle that emerges from all of this. When spiritual gifts are properly understood and properly exercised, they will always produce unity, but never uniformity. Uniformity will inevitably evolve into division. And of course, we already know that the Corinthians were notorious for all of their infighting, for their schisms, for their sectarianism. They were factious. They were divisive. They were always feuding. Beloved, unity in the body of Christ depends upon the diversity of its members. When you think about it, it's cults and insecure, unbiblical churches that require uniformity, typically through coercion. But biblical churches are marked by diversity. Insecure Christians and insecure churches cannot tolerate diversity. If you've been around them, as I have, you will find that their leaders are very powerful in using mind control. Some of them will even claim apostolic authority or that they got some new revelation from God. Now, here's what you need to do. No independent thinking allowed. No questioning of authority. Just stay with the herd and you will be told what to believe and how to live. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. That's the idea. And these people will have an emphasis on externals. Typically, everybody has to wear, shall we say, the same uniform. They have the same dress code to draw attention to their holiness Everyone must wear the similar hairstyles, like the same music, have the same version of the Bible, which is the King James, of course. Got to raise their kids according to the same standard, read the same books, obey the same rules and regulations, and everybody have the same preferences. Basically live in a safe bubble to avoid any contact with the world in which we are to be salt and light. Because diversity is considered a threat to their uniformity. 
Now, sadly, immature Christians will perceive themselves many times to be more spiritual than others. I have never felt that way. Maybe you have. Of course, we've all felt that way, even though we might not want to admit it. And when we think that way, we begin to think, well, you know, other people need to think and do what I do, have my preferences, conform to my standard, whatever it might be. But in reality, that's just an arrogant form of elitism, and it typically is an unwitting disguise to hide our insecurity, our immaturity. And and inevitably, that kind of thinking will lead to isolationism, it will lead to legalism, it will lead to elitism, but never to spirit-empowered ministry, effective ministry. Because those kind of people cannot survive outside of their bubble. So diversity must be annihilated. It cannot be tolerated. God cannot be trusted to build his church apart from my standards, our standards. We've got all the answers. God cannot be trusted to meet our needs apart from our preferences. And because of all of this uniformity, will end up producing disunity in the church. And this was what was happening in Corinth. They were operating in the flesh, not the spirit. The spirit was grieved, and, and in their flesh, they were creating their own little spiritual universe with their own little rules, a parallel universe to the kingdom of God, I might add. So to answer the question, what must we do to be spiritual? Their answer was, well, we all have to have the same showy gifts, especially tongues. The reverse of what Paul was saying. He is saying that a unified functioning body cannot exist apart from the diversity that God has created for it. So the body of Christ, as Paul has been saying, is made up of lots of different people with lots of different gifts, and with all of that, we are united together. There's, there's no place for individuality in the church. Or I should say there is a place for individuality. There's no place for individualism. So let's welcome diversity on secondary matters and so forth. That's the idea. This is going to help not threaten our unity. It should never, diversity should never separate us. It should always bind us together. And it's for this reason that Paul emphasizes grace with respect to the gifts. Now, here's where I I, want to show you a distinction. I want to back up a little bit, and this will help frame some of what the Spirit of God has for us this morning in our text. It's interesting how the Spirit makes a distinction about the gifts that we have through different terms that is used in the original language. You will not see this in your English translation. Now, first of all, remember, you will recall that some of the Corinthians were pulling their hair out all of, over all of this chaos that was going on in the church. And so they write Paul. And, and Paul's letters are basically a response to correct these types of things. With that in mind, notice in verse 1 of chapter 12, he essentially quotes one aspect of their inquiry. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So here Paul is basically quoting some of the Corinthians, and he uses the term that they use for spiritual gifts. Pneumaticon from pneumaticos. Uh, and, and really all the word means is spiritual You'll notice that in your translation, the word gifts is in italics. That's because it's been inserted there, so it, it, makes, it makes sense to our English mind. But it's interesting that in verses 4, 9, 28, 30, and 31, Paul uses the term charismaton from charisma, which, is, which comes from the Greek word charis, which is the word for grace. He uses that term, not pneumaticos, to refer to the spiritual gift. And so he's basically calling it not a spiritual gift, but a grace gift. 
Very interesting distinction. Now, I don't want to start a new denomination over this. I don't want to make a big deal of it, but, but I think it is, it's interesting to me as I look at the original language. So Paul doesn't call, call it a spiritual gift. He calls it a grace gift. And what a humbling distinction that is when you think about it. And I believe that was his purpose here. The Corinthians talked about spiritual gifts. Paul is talking about grace gifts. In other words, the gifts of God's grace. And this casts a whole different light on the subject. And what a gentle way of squelching their pride, right? Reminding them that whatever gift they have, it was given to them by the grace of a sovereign God. Again, verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So you might say he's, he's saying to them, so knock off this nonsense about acquiring the showy gifts. I mean, come on, people. Some of these gifts are not given to everyone. Be content with the gift that God has given you. Don't say, we all have to have the same gifts. Now, we will see this emphasis played out in the text before us here in verses 20 through 31. And I want to examine this under three headings that I I hope will be helpful to your understanding and your application. We're going to look, first of all, at what Paul says with respect to the interdependence of members. And then secondly... The varieties of ministry, and then finally, the more excellent way. And what a, what a joy, what a privilege it is to be a part of Calvary Bible Church. I've been here uh, next year at this time. It'll be 25 years. What, what an amazing place. I, I just rejoice in it. Now, now, remember, Paul has made it very clear that, like the human body, every member of The church has a unique function, has a unique gift. We're all part of this spiritual organism. We are therefore, shall we say, mutually dependent upon each other. God distributes these gifts as he pleases. And for this reason, it is utterly preposterous for a church member to covet the same gifts, like speaking in tongues. That's his point. Moreover, and please hear this, there's no place in the church for discontent or envy for someone else's gifts. Yet that was the problem in Corinth, resulting in the creation of the counterfeit gift of of tongues and all of the chaos and disunity in the church. So in this section, Paul is addressing this issue, and he's pointing out how the diversity of spiritual gifts that's distributed by God It has been done for the purpose of unifying the body of Christ, not dividing it. That the Holy Spirit's work and his power in each person is for the common good of the church, to promote oneness in the community, in the body of the redeemed. Therefore, each diverse member of the body of Christ must humbly recognize what the Spirit has given to them and use their gift appropriately. Otherwise, the body cannot function as it should. But, but as we come to verses 20 through 31, what we see is Paul reiterating some of these key principles, but he's also going to elaborate on some of the implications of them in the actual day-to-day life of the church. And that's what we want to do this morning. So first of all, uh, let's look at this issue of the interdependence of members. And in order to help you wrap your mind around this, I I thought I would break it down a little bit more for you. Here, Paul is going to address two extremes that tend to manifest themselves in the church. One extreme is the overconfident. The other extreme is the unconfident. The overconfident is, uh, I, I like to use, and guys, you will appreciate this. I played basketball in high school and college, and so I sometimes think of these things, but Uh, This could be categorized as the ball hog in the church. You all know what the ball hog is. Even if you don't, you're going to learn. The ball hog is the guy that never saw a shot he didn't like. I mean, he's one for 27 at three-point range, but every time he comes down the court, he's going to shoot with three guys on him. All right? So the overconfident person in the church is the cocky, independent, self-assured elitist that feels like he can handle everything or she can handle everything on her own, doesn't need anybody else on the team. 
Now, the other side of that is the extreme of the unconfident or the person that lacks confidence. And rather than the ball hog, I'm going to call this one Eeyore. You all know Eeyore. The pessimistic, gloomy, depressed, unmotivated little donkey on Winnie the Pooh that just can't get it together. I mean, I mean, this guy's got poor self-esteem. He has nothing to offer. The world is just so sour, so terrible. Now, like the church at Corinth, every church has its share of ball hogs and eeyores. So Paul starts by addressing both groups in verse 20. He frames it here. He says, but now there are many members, but one body. Once again, emphasizing diversity being the key to unity. A body can't function apart from that. And so... He's basically saying, you, you, you've got to be a part, welcome this. There's no such thing as, shall we say, ball hogs or eeyores in the human body. Aren't you glad that you don't have ball hog cells or eeyore organs? I mean, when that happens, we call that disease, right? So you get the idea. And unfortunately, the body of Christ all too often has these people in it. Maybe you fall into one of these categories. I have certainly been guilty of both. And if I looked into your life, I would see the same thing. So first of all, let's look at the overconfident in verse 21. He says, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Yeah, Mr. I says, you know, I'm the most complicated organ in the body, maybe next to the brain, and the body would be impaired without me, Mr. Hand. I, you know, I'm not, I'm a whole lot more important than you. I mean, when was, when was the last time somebody said, oh, what beautiful hands you have? But people say to me all the time, oh, what beautiful eyes you have. The same thing with you, feet. You know, I mean, you're just, you, you just kind of plod along in the dirt, and you know, you, you're enclosed in some smelly sock, you know, creating toe jam. I mean, you're nothing, you know. Nobody, has, uh, nobody ever says to you, oh, what beautiful feet you have. But, Mr. I, we could ask him, what happens, Mr. I, when you need food and water, right? What happens, Mr. I, when you need some light from a candle or warmth from a fire, You're in a world of hurt. What happens when you need some nourishment? Aren't you glad that there are hands and feet? That's the point. And of course, this can manifest itself in the church. It's easy for those that are highly gifted to try to function independently from the rest of the of the the church body. But in reality, both the highly gifted and the least gifted are mutually dependent upon each other. There's no place for a ball hog. There's no place for Eeyore in a church. You know, as a pastor, I'm aware of some of my gifts and some of my lack of gifts. And the more I pastor, the more I can see these things. The more you get to know me, the more you see them. Uh, I'm aware of my strengths and my weaknesses. And I'm aware of how I need people to do things that I cannot do. And I know that As I serve in the body of Christ, I need hands, I need the feet. In fact, I've got a little list here. I've got different lists when I I pray, and and I I hope I don't leave people out. But I was just thinking of, of the hands and the feet here at Calvary Bible Church. You know, I praise God for the nursery workers. I was saying somebody, this, you know, some child was screaming in there, and I was trying to talk to somebody. I thought, wow, what's going on? I said, you know, that reminds me. That's why I went into the ministry, so I wouldn't have to work in the nursery, you know. Praise God for nursery workers, right? Praise God for Sunday school teachers, for student ministries people, for musicians, for those who are part of the AV team, the safety team, the kitchen committee, the building and grounds personnel, people that clean the church. Praise God for women who organize the meals and send it to people who are in need. Praise God for prayer warriors. Some of them are at home. Some of them are here at the heating plant. Praise God for folks that maintain our website and download the sermons and the podcasts. 
those that prepare the elements for communion, those that prepare the bulletin, create the PowerPoint, put the lyrics on the screen, do the newsletter. Praise God for the finance committee, for bookkeepers and personal assistants, for deacons and deaconesses that serve so faithfully behind the scenes in ways that you could never even imagine, serving in obscurity. Praise God for my fellow elders, for those that that counsel, for those who sacrifice in stewardship and faithful giving. Praise God for the ushers. Praise God for the money counters, the greeters, the Wi-Fi hosts, for the decorations committee, for those who bring food to Sunday fellowship. And I have to say, I praise God for my wife. I just can't imagine the things that she does. And for so many of the rest of you that do things that I don't even know what's going on. You, you, you get my point, and if I've, if I've left anybody out, please let me know, and, and I will apologize. But my, my point is, folks, there's no place for overconfidence in the church. There's no place for a ball hog. And that's Paul's point. Verse 21, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our, our more presentable members have no need of it. Now, this is a fascinating statement. Fascinating implications. Here Paul refers to those who might erroneously believe that because of their gifts, um, they're, they're just not as attractive as some of the others, so therefore they're far less important, kind of the Eeyore mentality. And he obviously has the diverse issue of, of tongue speaking in mind because the Corinthians prized that gift more than any other. Um, and, and by the way, I've, I've been in situations where People have said, well, you know, I just, I just speak in tongues privately. I, you know, occasionally in a small group. I don't make a big deal of it. Really? I, I'm curious, what on earth does that do for anyone? How does, that benefit, how does that edify anyone? That's the purpose of the gifts. I mean, do you understand what you're saying? No. Does anybody interpret what you're saying? Well, no. Well, you get the idea. So, by the way, it's, it's for this reason in chapter 14 that Paul will exalt the gift of prophecy, that of preaching, proclaiming the word of God over the ecstatic gibberish uh, that didn't edify anyone, didn't exhort anyone, didn't console anyone. So, Paul now is moving from the overconfident to the underconfident or the unconfident, the Eeyore. I don't have anything to offer, so I'll just kind of sit on the bench. I'll just kind of sit back and let everybody else do the work. I mean, I I don't have any training. Who am I? So they typically sit back and moan and groan and criticize. Well, folks, there's no room for that in the church. And Paul is essentially saying here that it's often the least attractive gifts that are the most important. Isn't that interesting? You know, I think of that in this church. I praise God for the silent prayer warriors that are a part of this church that no one sees. They're often widows who hold no office. What a treasured gift they are to the church. What a secret weapon against the forces of darkness. How easy it is to neglect those with obscure ministries those who, for example, teach our children or whatever, and reserve all of our praise for the more public ministries. That's what Paul is is fighting against here. Notice verse 23, And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, which could be translated less attractive, on these we bestow more abundant honor. Now let me unpack this a bit for you. It's fascinating. The word bestow means to put around in the original language or to wrap around or to clothe. So Paul's analogy pertains to clothing or adorning the body in general. And he says, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. 
presentable um, uh, ashimon in the original language. It means, it, it means or, or less presentable, it means unseemly or um, unsuitable or forbidden for public display. It's that idea, shameful, indecent, unpresentable. It's a reference to those parts of the bodies, of our body, that should remain private. And isn't that true of our own bodies? Is that not true of our nature to adorn more greatly the unseemly or the, 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 the private parts of our body? We cover up that which is forbidden to be seen. I mean, that's called modesty. We, we just do that naturally. Moreover, we clothe what we or others would perceive to be eh, not as presentable, maybe ugly, the ugly parts of our body, the indecency. We do that for the sake of propriety. I, I was, as I was thinking about this, for, forgive a grandfather here, okay, but my, my little granddaughter, an illustration came to mind. I remember when she was uh, about one and a half, we were in the potty training stage, and right soon before she, she was two, she, she figured out the whole potty chair routine. And, of course, that's a time of great celebration in our family. And you, you all understand that whole deal. Well, one day she emerged from, her, from the bathroom where she has her little pink throne, okay, and she emerged from the throne and came into my study and said, Papa, I need clean panties. Okay, so I'm in the middle of Greek exegesis, you know, and I've got to deal with this. So it's, all right, sweetheart, I'll, I'll, I'll tell Nana. And I hollered for Nana. She needs some clean panties. And then she said this, nobody wants to see my stinky bottom. <laughs> Great illustration for what Paul is saying here. This is part of his analogy. Look, the face and the hands, they, they, they're exposed. They don't need any adornment. But there are other parts of our bodies that need that adornment. Private parts, unseemly parts, the stinky bottom part, that needs to be covered up. It needs to be treated special. That's what he's saying here. By the way, as a footnote, the immodesty and the indecent exposure that we have grown accustomed to in our culture is really evidence of the profound depravity that has taken hold of our society and the wrath of divine abandonment. I mean, you go to Walmart today and, you, and it'll just about turn your stomach to see some of the things that you witness. You understand that. So Paul is saying that those who minister within the church, that we may deem or they might deem for themselves to be less honorable, those, those need and deserve more care, more adornment than those with the more noticeable, attractive gifts. This was Paul's great concern for the Corinthians. So those with the prominent gifts that are manifested in public, like in leadership, have far less need for affirmation and encouragement than those that function in obscurity the less prominent gifts. Therefore, verse 23, he says, on these we bestow more abundant honor. Now, again, we all take great care in covering up certain parts of our body that we see as less attractive. We all understand that. It's not because those parts are less important. It's, it's that those parts are not to be displayed in public. Once again, that's the idea here. But but when they are treated, or when they're covered, when they're adorned properly, they become more attractive, right? That's the idea. They become more attractive, like our unadorned features. We can all look at our hands and maybe even our feet, and certainly our faces, our head, they're unadorned. They're, they're okay, attractive, so to speak. But when we cover up those hidden parts, they become attractive as well. They deserve tender care. They become more important. And as I was thinking about this, you know, I spend a lot more time taking care of my heart and my cardiovascular system than I do my hair. Don't you? If you don't, you should. All right? I spend a lot more time 
and energy caring for my digestive tract than I do for my face. I mean, what you see is what you get, right? We get used to that. But you get the idea here. My hair and my face are more visible. You might say they are more esteemed. But my heart and my digestive tract are far more important in my body, to my body. And beloved, how often do we really thank those who serve in obscurity? Probably not often enough. But if we stop to think how important they are to the body, the body of Christ, we will care for them. We will encourage them more. That's the idea. And a proper understanding of these things will prevent the two extremes, the overconfidence and the lack of confidence. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, given more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now think about this. Like the human body, and this is Paul's point, there is an interdependence among the members of the body of Christ. God is a God of order. He is a God of balance. He is a God of harmony. And certainly this diversity produces the necessary unity. I, I was reading this last week that when an eagle loses a feather on its wing from an injury or whatever, its body will automatically shed the same size feather on the other wing for its balance. It's an amazing thing how God makes all of us in terms of the balance of the harmony of how the body should function. And think how out of balance, if you will, the church can become when a certain feather is missing. Think how out of order a family becomes when the husband and wife roles are somehow reversed or distorted And think how dysfunctional a church can become when you have a square peg that you put in a round hole. Forgive me for mixing my metaphors, but I hope you get the idea. It's a tragic thing to see someone being placed in a position for which they are not gifted. Everybody ends up suffering, just like the church at Corinth. Everybody trying to speak in tongues. I mean, it just produces chaos and confusion. But notice another reality inherent in the body of Christ in verse 26. He says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, notice this is not an imperative. This is an indicative. This is the reality. This is, this is how it works in a body. And have you ever considered that there is really, shall we say, uh, the, the, uh, the natural law of sympathy within the human body? It's natural. It's automatic. Think about it. Think what happens when you have an injury. Immediately the body goes into action. Immediately it responds with swelling, which is a predictable inflammatory response that's necessary to begin the healing immediately the immune system kicks into high gear and, and brings blood to that area to prevent, and, and white blood cells to prevent germs from entering the body and kill those germs. The, the, the blood cells, what are they called? The, the, the platelets have to form in order for there to be the appropriate clotting. And then, again, the white blood cells come to protect the body. Everything just automatically begins to respond. There's a natural law of sympathy within the human body. There is redness and there is heat. And, of course, that's necessary to increase the blood flow. And then with the swelling, that, that, there's an increased movement of, of the fluids within the body and the white blood cells to come to the area of inflammation to begin to repair the injured area. You get the idea. And when you think about it, the body does this naturally. That's what Paul is saying. It, 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 it's not being cajoled to do this. It's not some duty It just happens automatically. Folks, so too fellow members of the body of Christ. When one member suffers, we all suffer with him or her, right? And we all naturally spring into action 
to surround the wounded member. We do it out of desire, not out of duty. It's the law of sympathy within the body because we all share a common life, right? By the way, anyone who lacks this kind of sympathy for fellow Christians proves that they are not a member of the body of Christ. Indeed, we we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, as we read earlier. We sympathize with them because we are part of them. That's the point. I've seen this a thousand times here at Calvary Bible Church, probably a hundred thousand times. Whenever and wherever there's a need to help a brother or sister in Christ, there is this outpouring of sympathy. People spring into action. It's overwhelming. And hopefully as together we contemplate these realities, we can once again see, folks, that there's no room here for overconfidence or underconfidence. We all have a part to play. There's no place for a ball hog or for an Eeyore. We all need each other. And we've all been perfectly equipped to respond the ways that God would have us respond in the body of Christ, to care for one another and bring glory to Christ. Look back up in verse 7 of chapter 12. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. And again, back to verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Well, moving quickly, we've seen the interdependence of members. Secondly, notice the varieties of ministries. I'll cover this. You're aware of a lot of this in verses 27 through 31. And here's kind of the application. He lists some, uh, some of the gifts that God has appointed to exist within the body to promote unity. And he's emphasizing once again that there's no place for uniformity here. We're not all gifted the same way. So stop seeking the same gifts. Let's welcome diversity on secondary matters. It's it's going to help. It's not going to threaten unity. Verse 28, he says, and God has appointed. The term literally means to officially set in place. God has officially set in place in the church. And then he gives a list here. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now, I've explained these things in great details in, in the past, and so I'm not going to repeat myself. But, but what Paul is doing here is providing a sampling of some of the offices and gifts that God has sovereignly appointed to exist within the, his church to equip the church. And so once again, he's underscoring the, the need for a varieties of ministry. Remember back in verse 5, he speaks of varieties of ministries, how the church has to be diversified in order for it to be unified. And therefore, how important it is for every member, each one of us, to do his or her part in the body. Because none of us have all the gifts. And God has never intended for all of us to have the same grace gifts or the most public and noticeable gifts. Sometimes I hear especially young men say, oh, I would love to be a pastor. And I always want to tell them, oh, you need to talk to me for a long time. There's wonderful benefits to being a pastor, but believe me, if God has not called and gifted you to do that, you will not survive because it can be a living hell because ministry is war. We don't all have the same gifts. So be content with the grace gift that you have, even if it's not a noticeable gift. Verse 29, he says, all are not apostles, are they? Or prophets or teachers or workers of miracles or gifts of healing. They don't all speak in tongues. We don't all interpret, right? We don't all have that, do we? Well, no. By the way, this whole section obviously just totally refutes the charismatic and Pentecostal heresy that believes that a person must pursue a second work of grace, which they call baptism by the Holy Spirit, uh, resulting in the gift of tongues, which will then elevate you to the status of the elite Christian that's spirit-filled. 
mean, it's just so profoundly unbiblical. Well, finally, the Apostle Paul, moving from the interdependence of members and the varieties of ministries, he concludes this little section in the chapter by speaking of the more excellent way. Notice verse 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Now, I I need to be technical here because some of you may ask about this. Grammatically, in the original language, the phrase, but earnestly desire, can be translated, but you earnestly desire the, the greater gifts. It can be translated in the indicative rather than the imperative. And in Greek grammar, they, they, both forms are identical. And so they have to be determined by context. And frankly, I think that fits better in the context with what Paul has been discussing. In other words, but you earnestly desire the greater gifts. Um, and, and, and because he's going to go on to explain this in chapters 13 and 14. Plus, the phrase earnestly desire, zello in the original language, is a term that is normally used in other places to describe that which is negative, referring to, to, that, to, to, to earnestly desiring something, meaning to be jealous about it, to be envious of something, to covet something. And remember now, he has repeatedly emphasized God's sovereignty in appointing specific gifts and that each of us need to be content with the gift that we have been given and not to envy and therefore not to earnestly desire the greater gifts. And so I think it's better translated, but you earnestly desire the greater gifts. However, if you want to leave it in the same form that that it is there, like in my New American Standard, um, and translate it, uh, in, in the imperative as a command, but earnestly desire the great, greater gifts, it's possible to conclude that Paul was saying that, that, that we are to desire the greater gifts, meaning perhaps those that would, that would serve each other, serve the body of Christ, build up the community of Christ, rather than elevate yourself to some high status or make you feel more spiritual like they were doing. But either way, Paul promises to show them a still more excellent way. And the next time I'm with you, we will begin to look at that. And that way will be chapter 13 and even into 14, the way of love that he will describe, which also includes both faith and hope. Faith, hope, and love will all bear the same fruits of the Spirit, the same fruits of ministry as we would read about, for example, in Galatians 5. So, let me challenge you this morning, dear members of Calvary Bible Church. Let's pray that God will help us see where we need to serve. Because we all need each other. We all need to get involved. And by the way, you say, well, I'm not sure what my grace gift, my spiritual gift, I'm not really sure what it is. Well, you know, don't worry about it. Just get involved. Just start serving someplace. Pray that the Lord will find you a place to serve. And then as you begin to serve, the Spirit of God will begin to move you. And before you know it, you will be affirmed in certain areas of ministry. And that affirmation will be the proof of kind of what your gift is going to be. And it's going to look different for everybody. But the point is you need to get involved. We all need each other. We've all been equipped. We've all been empowered for this. The the body of Christ is not, it's not a place for a group of spiritual elitists, right? Not at all. We've all received unique grace gifts. And so, therefore, when we come to church and as we think about our relationships here in the body of Christ, we have to realize that, that we all come as humble beggars, right? We, we have nothing to offer. We are debtors to God's grace. So there's no room for boasting about your gift. There's no room for being discontent with your gifts or envying somebody else. There's no place for competition. We're all different. The reality is, folks... The ground is level at the cross, right? It's level at the cross. We're all one in terms of our sin, in terms of our need for forgiveness. 
and receiving a righteousness we do not possess. Oh, dear Christians, if I can put it this way, don't forget the grace of God that he has lavished upon you. We're all debtors to his grace for eternity. And as we read earlier then in, in our scripture reading, Romans 12, 1, Paul would say, therefore, I urge you. In other words, I plead with you with all of my heart, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Isn't it great to be a part of the body of Christ? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words that speak so practically to each of each of us. And I thank you for the members of Calvary Bible Church to know that the vast majority of everybody that's a part of this church just functions naturally to serve within the body in, in, in unique ways. And I pray that that we can move from 70 or 80% to 100% where everyone can really find a place where they can serve you. And maybe it's new places, that new ministries, Lord, whatever it is, I just pray that you will uh, reveal these things to each of us and bless us as a church. And then finally, Lord, if there be one here today that's not a part of the body, that finds these things foreign, that has to admit that he or she really doesn't have a deep love for Christ or desire to serve Christ, I pray that they will see their need for repentance, that they will cry out for salvation, that they will run to the cross and be saved. Lord, only you can do this, and I pray that you will do so for anyone that does not know Christ as Savior here today. So we thank you, we give you praise in all things. For Jesus' sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.